Uh, it's bittersweet to think this is our last full uh, session. The one uh, this afternoon will be interactive and question answer time. I hope you've been uh, jotting down your questions and uh, are prepared uh, to ask questions. And it's always a good time uh, when we have those Q&As because I learn a lot and I get challenged and strengthened in the faith as we think of questions that, uh, that I've never thought of before. So uh, come back out after lunch and we'll enjoy that. Uh, I want to thank you uh, for having my family and I in. It's been a privilege to get to meet you. Look forward to fellowshipping a little bit over lunch after uh, church as well. Uh, but be sure to stop by our table, say hello to my wife and two of our daughters, and our granddaughter is here uh, as well. And uh, we just feel like we've got a whole new set of friends here. And uh, it's one of the fun things that we get to do in, in ministry for all these years is to travel and meet brothers and sisters in Christ and see how the Lord is working. And i got to tell you, you have something very special here. I, I think you probably know that already. Uh, but, uh, you know, that music team was phenomenal. I mean, there are churches that would kill to have that uh, kind of uh, music and I, I was kind of caught off guard because I was looking forward to two or three more songs in the set and then all of a sudden I got to listen to myself and I mean I'm, that's not fair but uh, and uh, of course Pastor Duane's been a great blessing if you don't have a good Bible teaching church home uh, you know this is it <laughs> come come here um, uh, you know I've always said you should go to the church uh, not nearest to you but dearest to you and this is a dear church so uh, but as we uh, talk about uh, end times Bible prophecy and an overview of what God is, is doing. We've, uh, we've talked about a lot this weekend, and um, uh, some of it may have been new to you, some of it may have been, been challenging to you, some of it may be encouraging to you, but I want us to finish up uh, by looking at uh, what I call one minute after the rapture, the next great prophetic event to which we all look forward. And if you're like me, after looking at the signs of the times and some of the things that I address in my Spirit of the Antichrist books, I, I am longing for the rapture more every day, minute by minute. I wish it were today. Come, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, because uh, uh, Satan has really uh, got a, a foothold in, in, in our world today as he's setting the stage for his satanically inspired one world system that will be rolled out after the rapture. And uh, so I want us to take a look at this uh, new event revealed in God's plan through the Apostle Paul in the New Testament called uh, the Rapture. And the key passage is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be kind of camped out there, though I'm going to look at a lot of scripture back and forth. But this is our primary text where Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. In uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul teaches some additional information about uh, the rapture, and he calls it a mystery. So 1 Thessalonians was written on his second missionary journey in 51 AD, as was 2 Thessalonians, the second letter, both of which talk a lot about the rapture. Uh, Corinthians came along about five years, six years later, 56, 57 AD, on his third missionary journey. And he calls it a mystery, meaning something previously unrevealed. Contrary to the way we use the term mystery in English, it's not something confusing or hard to understand or mysterious in that sense. A mystery in Greek, it's the word mysterion. It just means something previously unrevealed that is now being disclosed. So you'll never find the doctrine of the rapture in the Old Testament. It's a unique mystery and blessing for the church that was unveiled 
under the inspiration of the Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, this passage that we see right here. And that word that's highlighted in red there is where we get the word rapture from. It's the Greek word harpazo, which when the Bible was translated into Latin from Greek in the 4th century, they used the word rapire, meaning rapture, uh, to translate this word. But the Greek word, when the quill hit the sheepskin under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that God revealed was harpazo, meaning to snatch or take away. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. For example, it's the same word that we read about in Acts chapter 9 after Philip evangelized the Ethiopian government leader. And he said, the Bible says that the Spirit of the Lord caught Philip away. And that word caught away is the same word, harpazo. Uh, and so if you look it up in a Greek dictionary, you'll find that one of the uh, key meanings is to rescue from threatening danger, to rescue from threatening danger. And that's the sense of the word, for example, in the book of Jude, same word, harpazo, when he talks about others saved with fear, pulling them out of the fire. And I think that's the sense of harpazo here in our rapture passage, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh, the rapture will be a sudden, quick urgent rescue from this present evil age, as Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. The best word picture I can try to paint for you is to picture, uh, imagine a young, a young child maybe playing with a, a ball in the front yard, and the ball gets away from him and rolls into the street, and this young toddler goes racing after the ball into the street. Now, at the same time, there's a truck barreling down the road, and, and as if nothing is done, that truck is going to tragically plow into that toddler running after his ball in the street. But it just so happens that a heroic bystander, a jogger, is running by at the same time, sees what's happening in real time, and thinks on his feet, and is quickly able to grab that child by the back of his collar and yank him out of the way as that truck goes barreling by. And that's kind of the picture of the rapture. Uh, the Lord, before the great and terrible day of the Lord's wrath, that final seven-year period that the Bible talks so much about, Old and New Testament alike, the seven years immediately preceding the return of Christ. It's called the 70th week of Daniel. The word week in Hebrew is Shabua. It means a seven-year period. So the 70th seven-year period, 490-year plan that God revealed in, in Daniel's prophecy, Daniel chapter 9. 483 of those years have already been fulfilled. They were finished when Christ came at his first advent. The final seven years await future fulfillment. They will begin when the Antichrist rises to world prominence, signs the peace treaty with, for seven years with Israel, and that starts the clock ticking on the final seven years of Daniel's 490-year plan. It's called the time of Jacob's trouble or Israel's trouble. It's called the overflowing scourge, the great day of the Lord's wrath, a uh, number of names uh, for it in Scripture. But the Bible promises that the church will be snatched out of the way before that final seven-year period unfolds on the earth. Now, it does not mean, and I'm going to talk more about this in a moment, that the church will be rescued before things get bad. Okay? That's a naive viewpoint. Things have been bad for a lot of brothers and sisters in Christ for 2,000 years of church history. In fact, there are more persecuted Christians for the faith today than at any other time in human history. In chapter 12 of uh, Spirit of the Antichrist, Volume 2, I have a whole chapter on the rise of anti-Christian sentiment, especially in America. So uh, we're not promised that we won't have trouble. In fact, we're promised just the opposite. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The Apostle Paul said that uh, all who desire to live godly in Christ, 2 Timothy 3.12, will suffer persecution. So don't let anybody tell you that the, the doctrine of the rapture teaches we're going to be rescued before things get bad. 
Uh, if the Lord tarries his coming, it's going to get bad for all of us. But what we are promised is that we will be rescued from harm's way, snatched out of the way before that great and terrible day of the Lord, the seven-year uh, period. It's also We're also told in 1 Corinthians 15 that it happens in the twinkling of an eye, just that quick. Uh, it'll happen. And again, when he says the dead in Christ, he's talking about believers, our brothers and sisters who know the Lord, who've already passed away. They're in heaven to be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. But their bodies, like you know, all bodies, go the way of all flesh. They're either in the grave or if they were burned up or lost at sea, wherever they might be. But at the rapture, the very atoms that make up our physicality for those who have died will be reconstituted and given a glorified uh, body, as, as we read here in 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, the incorruptible has to be changed. The, I mean, the corruption has to be changed into incorruptible. So no, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom, Paul says. So we've got we've to live in our physical bodies now, but when we are raptured, we are translated instantly. Those who have already died are given their glorified body in the resurrection and we go uh, to meet the Lord near. And that event, the rapture, that happens in the twinkling of an eye, is the next great prophetic event. As we talked about in the first hour, the signs are all over the place that the stage is being set for end times events, but the rapture is a signless event. Now, there's nothing I can tell you that says, oh, the rapture is going to happen tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Um, but I can tell you that the stage, as we talked about, is being set dramatically for all of the things that happen after the rapture, and if that's the case, that must mean the rapture is getting closer and closer, and we need to be ready. So what I'd like to do in the remainder of our time is examine this doctrine of the rapture from two perspectives. First of all, from the perspective of those who are caught up. That's believers. I hope that's you. I hope as you sit here today, there's been a time in your life when you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again to pay your personal penalty for sin. I hope you've been saved. I hope you've had that moment when you've become a Christian because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so we want to see what it will be like one minute after the rapture for those of us who are caught up. And then we'll turn our attention uh, to the negative, and that is, what about those who are left behind? What about those who don't know the Lord? What will life be like for them one minute after the rapture? So we'll start with those who are caught up. So those who are caught up will, first of all, experience one minute after the rapture, and I'm using one minute there as kind of a metaphor for at the rapture, immediately after the rapture. Sometimes people come up to me and say, one minute? Why, why, why not 57 seconds? No, I'm not, it's a metaphor. But um, The first thing we're going to experience is a long-awaited return. A long-awaited return. You know, since Christ ascended to the right hand of the throne of God, uh, uh, 40 days after he resurrected in 33 AD, uh, he promised he'd come back. And he would come in like manner, Acts 1.11 tells us. Um, and we've been waiting. We've been waiting for this. 2,000 years and counting, almost 2,000 years and counting. And Jesus, the very night that he was betrayed, told his disciples in that intimate conversation that he had after he washed their feet and shared the Passover meal, he said, if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That's the earliest reference, by the way, to the rapture in human history. Uh, you know, he... he he alludes to it. He doesn't call it the rapture, and it's not until Paul's writings some 18 years later when he wrote 1 Thessalonians that we begin to see what, what he was talking about there. But he's clearly talking about coming again and receiving us to where he is. That's, that's critical. It's important to note that Jesus did not say the purpose of this future coming is so that he can be where we are. That's not what this is. This is the rapture. He says his purpose is so that we can be where he is. Now, he will come someday all the way to the earth. And he will rule and reign in perfect peace, righteousness, and justice. 
for a thousand years in the millennial reign. But this is so that he can take us to be where he is. Um, Titus calls this, uh, in, 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 the, in the book of Titus, Paul says, it's the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you look at the end times chart that we've been talking a lot about uh, and shown this a lot throughout the weekend as a point of reference, here's the rapture that starts the clock ticking on God's end times plan. And we are going to experience this long-awaited return. And if you read through the New Testament, the Gospels in particular, you find that the, the, the believing remnant, the disciples and not Judas, but the other 11 and the other believers that got saved under Christ's ministry, were very passionate, excited, and you might even say obsessed with the kingdom. Because from their perspective in the first century, they'd been waiting on it since it was promised to Abraham 2,000 years before Christ in Genesis 12 and reiterated to King David in 2 Samuel 7 for 1,000 years before Christ. And all the prophets pre- and post-exilic had reiterated it again and again. We just sung about Ezekiel and the days of Elijah and the dry bones becoming his flesh. I mean, they've been waiting for this coming kingdom for all this time. The Psalms talked about it extensively. And so uh, in the first century, uh, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19 that as Jesus neared Jerusalem and was about to be right into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, which happened Monday, March 30th, 33 AD, we actually celebrated in church history on a Sunday because that's when the church meets. So we celebrate the resurrection one Sunday, Sunday before we celebrate the triumphal entry, but it actually occurred in history on a Monday. But on Sunday, the day before, he's sitting in Bethany, and Luke, under the inspiration of the Spirit, tells us, as they heard these things, he spoke another parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they, the disciples, thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I mean, they were obsessed with the kingdom. So here they were living in the time of Christ, but their focus, which they didn't understand because it hadn't been revealed yet, the full details of God's plan of the ages, they were obsessed with the kingdom. That's where their mind was. They wanted to have that time when it was perfect peace and justice and righteousness, when all the governments of the people of the world were on Christ's shoulders uh, and the kingdom shall have no end. That's what they wanted. They wanted to throw off the shackles of Rome and, and finally be free as God's people to, to worship and live in their, in their homeland with the Messiah on the throne. That's where their attention was. But what they didn't understand was there was a whole lot that had to happen from their time all the way getting up to the kingdom. And so, uh, you know, they, were, they, they, they didn't understand how things were going to play out. Now you fast forward to 40 days after the resurrection on the Mount of Ascension, as I mentioned a moment ago, and now they're beginning to put the pieces together. They're beginning to understand that, you know, the cross has to come before the, ground, the crown. Suffering has to come before exaltation. They're beginning to see that Jesus was not only the victorious warrior and the righteous king and judge, but he's the suffering servant and the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, they should have known all that. It was very clearly outlined in Scripture. But they, they, the, the Jewish people and even the prophets had a tendency to kind of blur the distinction between the first and second advents of Christ. And they were often mentioned in one prophecy, and you have to kind of see how they, they play out. But by this time, now they'd watched their Lord suffer and die on the cross. They'd seen him laid in the tomb. They'd met him for 40 days as he appeared to thousands of eyewitnesses after the resurrection, alive and well. They'd had breakfast with him on the shore. And so now they're on the top of the Mount of Olives and the disciples say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now I chuckle because it's, it's kind of interesting to me that after all they've just seen in the last 40 days, 
43 days if you count from the, the Friday that he was arrested. Uh, they haven't lost their obsession with the kingdom, right? They still are passionate about it. It's almost like, you know, again, Luke tells us what they said, but if I were to paraphrase this, I, I wonder if it might have gone something like this. Lord, we totally understand now what you've been saying for three and a half years. We get that you had to die to pay our penalty for sin. We, and by the way, thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We appreciate it. We don't have to go to hell now. Thank you for dying in our place. Uh, we understand that we really misunderstood how this was going to go down, <laughs> and we're sorry about that, and, uh, and we're glad that you rose from the dead. Thank you for that too, Lord. But Lord, can we get back to more important matters? When is the kingdom going to come? <laughs> and that's kind of what, what they were asking. And this would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to rebuke them if indeed the kingdom, as so many teach today, is spiritual or metaphorical or symbolic, that there's not going to be a literal temple in a literal Jerusalem with a literal rebuilt temple with a literal throne and a literal reigning of Christ. If that's the case, like so many false teachers suggest today, this would have been the perfect opportunity for Jesus to dispel the myth of a literal kingdom. And he didn't do it. In fact, he affirmed it. What does he say? He says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. Times is the Greek word chronos. It means length or duration. Kairos is the word seasons. It means exact date. It's not for you to know when this kingdom is exactly going to happen. What you need to do is go back to Jerusalem and, and, and be about the Father's business. And then he ascends up to the right hand of the throne of God, which we know from Psalm 110 is the throne in waiting. He's waiting for all things to be put under his feet. Christ is, God's going to send him back, and he will at that point take the throne. Uh, and so they're looking, gazing up after he's ascended out of sight, and these men in white raiment come and say, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. See, why were the disciples standing there looking up? Did they, it's almost like they thought that he was going to run up to heaven, knock on God's office, grab the keys to the kingdom, and come right back down and usher it in. They still didn't understand there was going to be this delay. Now, Jesus had taught them, again, a week before he was crucified, or less than a week, on Sunday, as they're in the outskirts of Jerusalem, Luke 19, he had told them through the parable of Aminas that, look, the kingdom's not going to come immediately. The king is going to go away to receive the kingdom for a while, a long journey. Then he's going to come back eventually. And while he's gone, you need to be good stewards of what he's entrusted to you. Of course, nobody could have understood at that moment he would be talking about 2,000 years, which is where we are today, but there was going to be a delay. So they certainly should have known that he wasn't going to come right back down, but that's the implication. And so, of course, what do they do? Uh, they go immediately after kind of getting knocked back into reality when these men say this to them. They go back to Jerusalem, and I mentioned this yesterday, the first order of business in later in Acts chapter 1 is to cast lots to replace Judas. Now, why was that such an urgent matter? Well, because, again, Jesus had told them while he was with them that they would reign on 12 thrones with him in the kingdom. And if they didn't want that 12th throne to be empty because Judas had proved not to be a believer, and, and, and so they had an empty spot. So, man, he's coming right back. We better get ready. Let's, make, let's, let's pick our 12th you know, person to sit on the throne, you know. So there was this obsession with the kingdom all throughout his ministry. They wanted to know who was going to be the greatest, who was going to sit where. One of the disciples' mothers asked if her sons could sit on either side of Jesus in the kingdom. You never get even the slightest inkling 
from Genesis to Revelation that the kingdom of God that is to come is some type of spiritualized, metaphorical, symbolic kingdom. In fact, the, the prophet Ezekiel talks, has nine chapters talking in great detail about the, the dimensions and the architectural design of the temp, millennial temple. Uh, and so you have to really do a lot of bad uh, Bible interpretation to sweep that away and make it all some big giant metaphor. So indeed, this has been a promise of the Lord for some time, a long-awaited return, and it will all start with the rapture one day. And one minute after rapture, we will be the first ones to know God's end times plan has kicked in. And then it'll involve a timely rescue, a timely rescue. Again, as I quoted earlier, Galatians 1.4 says, he will deliver us from this present evil age, and the rapture indeed does rescue us from an ever-worsening world. Okay, remember, the world is getting worse and worse. In the panoramic view of history, we find ourselves in what the Bible calls the last days, because indeed the church age is the final age prior to uh, the coming uh, kingdom. And the only age left after this age is the kingdom. Um, but what we sometimes forget is that depravity is a degenerative disease. It does not get better with time. If left alone, it will only get worse and worse. Uh, and it doesn't self-correct. Uh, and now, of course, there are always seasons of God's blessing throughout 6,000 years of human history where pockets of revival are taking place. The Spirit of God is always alive and well-moving on planet Earth. But as a function of the whole, mankind is getting worse and worse. And until Christ comes back and makes all things new and the curse of sin is removed, we will not see a self-regulated revival or something that somehow we get better and better. There's a lot of bad teaching out there that suggests if we can just elect enough Christians or you know, impose a moral law on everybody, we can get better and better. And when we're finally good enough, then Christ will come back. No, that's not the teaching of Scripture. The Scripture says when things get so bad that God says enough's enough, then he's going to come back. The Bible says evil men and imposters are getting worse and worse. I mean, you couldn't make it any more clear. So if we go back to our panoramic view of history, ever since sin entered, things are getting worse and worse and worse. And they will climax with the, the, the terrible seven-year period when the Antichrist is indwelt by Satan and rules in a satanically inspired uh, reign of, of terror and tyranny. The Bible tells us the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Remember when Satan approached God in heaven to accuse Job, God says, where do you come from? And Satan says, well, I come from going to and fro on the earth and walking back and forth on it. The, the earth is the devil's playground. This is his place. And someday we're going to be rescued from that. Uh, there is a spiritual battle raging in the heavenlies. And by the way, as I've said a lot recently in different interviews, when things are heating up on earth, which they are, it always means things are heating up in the heavenlies because this is ultimately a spiritual battle. And uh, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, rulers of darkness of this age, and spiritual host of wickedness in uh, the heavenly places. Uh, and so, you know, the rapture rescues us from this ever-worsening ever world. It doesn't mean that he's going to rescue us before things get bad, because, it's, again, it's already bad. Ask the Coptic Christians who were slaughtered and beheaded if it was really bad. You know, we're not teaching that the rapture is going to rescue. You don't have to worry. Just sit back and eat, drink, and be merry. Uh, you, things won't bad won't happen because you're going to be raptured. No, no, just the opposite. Things are getting worse and worse, and, but we will be re rescued from that. But here's the bigger point. Not only does the rapture rescue us from this ever-worsening world, but it rescues us from the wrath of God that is to come. And that's the real promise that Paul gives us 
in 1 Thessalonians. So the entire seven-year period is known as the great day of the Lord's wrath. And that's what we're promised to be delivered from. In 1 Thess 1.10, he says he delivers us from the wrath to come. 1 Thess 5.9, he didn't appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation or deliverance. Remember the word salvation uh, is, is the Greek verb sotzo, uh, or the noun is soterios, and it means deliverance. And it, depending on the context, it can mean deliverance from the penalty of sin into eternal life. Uh, that's what we, the way we use it. We talk about, hey, how long have you been saved? Or when did you get saved? Or would you like to be saved? So we tend to assume saved always means eternally. But actually, of the 108 usages of the word in the New Testament, 58% of them have nothing to do with eternal life. It just means deliverance into the kingdom. And that's what he's talking about here. Uh, we're not going to be having to go through the wrath of God because we will be delivered before that happens. So... The, one minute after the rapture, we will experience a long-awaited return, a timely rescue, but we'll also experience a physical renewal. As I mentioned, we shall all be changed because flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we shall all be changed. This corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. Uh, Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5 that we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. And the older I get the more I understand this verse. You know, I read this verse as a teenager in college or in my 20s, I'm thinking, groaning? What do you mean? Now I groan when I walked up these steps to get into the pulpit. You know, I, oh, I see, I get it, right? Um, you know, he says the same thing later on in chapter 8. He says, we're eagerly waiting for the redemption of our body. And by the way, if you don't think your body is deteriorating, then let me give you a little assignment to do when you get home. When you get home, I want you to go find your wedding album from when you got married. And you may have a picture on the wall or a picture on a mantle somewhere of your wedding photo. But I want you to find your wedding photo. And then I want you to pull out your wallet and compare that picture to your latest driver's license picture. <laughs> and ask yourself, have I deteriorated? And the answer will be, an over if you're like me, the answer will be an overwhelming yes. So we'll experience that long-awaited physical renewal. And then we'll also experience a corresponding resurrection, that is, for those who've died. And remember, believers fall into two categories. Some of them have gone before us and are in heaven today. Some of them are still here among us. For those of us that are here, we will experience a physical renewal. For those who've already gone before us, they will at the same time experience a glorified body, a corresponding resurrection. Remember, the dead in Christ will rise first. And one of the charts that we have in our chart book, and I've shown this yesterday in a couple of different contexts, is when will our bodies be resurrected? And you see there that a church-age believer receives their resurrected body at the rapture if they've died. And then uh, the fourth thing we're going to see is those who are caught up will experience a joyful reunion. A joyful reunion. You know, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, don't, don't grieve or sorrow as those who have no hope. Um, you know, we've, uh, we've all been to funerals of, of believers, maybe family, friends, parent, child, brother, sister, grandparents. And it's, it's sorrowful because we miss them. And we wish we could spend more time with them here. Or we're sorrowful, as in the case of the funeral I did a couple of weeks ago for a, a godly man who, for reasons I'll never understand, and when I get to heaven and see him, I'm going to kill him. But he took his own life. <laughs> and left a 23-year-old, a 21-year-old, and an 18-year-old son, also believers. And 
we had a, a service for him, and, and it was sad, sad thinking about those boys growing up and his, their dad not being able to be at their wedding. Um, but we knew he was a believer, and we know we're going to see him again in heaven because nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you're a Christian today, you're going to be a Christian tomorrow. You can't do anything to become an unchristian because you didn't do anything to become a Christian. It's by the grace of God through faith alone. And so, but, so there's sorrow, but it's not the same kind of sorrow. But one minute after the rapture, one minute after the rapture, we're going to have this joyful reunion. And because the Bible says at the rapture, God will bring with him those who sleep. That's a euphemism for death. Those who've died in Christ. And so if you know someone who's a believer uh, and they have died, they're with Christ today and they're going to come back and we're going to have this grand reunion in the sky again. Jesus talks about when I come back, I want to bring you to be where I am. So not only is there going to be a joyful reunion with our loved ones who are believers, but with our Savior himself, and we're going to see him face to face. And then number six, there's going to be a personal reward. One minute after the rapture for those who are caught up. Remember Jesus said, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. That's not talking about eternal life because eternal life is not a reward that we earn by works. It's a free gift that we receive by faith. But there are rewards that can be earned based on our faithfulness to the Lord during this earthly life. And that's why John tells us when he appears, we want to we abide in him. We want to stay close to him, meet, remain in close fellowship with him as a believer, so that when he appears, we're confident and not ashamed. And I hope that uh, that's your goal, is to be walking with the Lord faithfully, because that twinkling of an eye moment could happen at any moment, and you certainly don't want to be found uh, you know, backslidden away from the Lord. It won't affect your eternal destiny, but it will affect your rewards. And we talked about that yesterday. Uh, remember, Paul says that whatever we do, we should do it heartily as to the Lord, knowing that from the Lord we will receive the reward. We must all appear before that bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ. Not a judgment to see whether we go into heaven or hell. That's already been decided. Jesus said, the moment you believed in me, you've passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. You're a born-again believer but we will be evaluated based on our faithfulness and rewarded accordingly. And then finally, for those who are caught up, we will experience a glorious rejoicing. You know, it's, it's interesting to me that every time the rapture is mentioned in Scripture, there's some type of contextual reference to comfort, exhortation, joy. It's called the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. In the main primary rapture passage that we've been looking at, 1 Thessalonians 4, we're told to comfort one another with these words. I mean, it was comforting because it was something wonderful, blessed, exciting, something hopeful to look forward to. And when that happens, it will be an occasion of great joy, which, uh, Brother Duane, is another reason why, and there are many, that we, we, we reject the notion that the rapture will some, somehow happen after part of the tribulation. Because just imagine how silly these words would sound. If you believe the rapture happens at the end of the tribulation, then you have to believe that Paul is saying something like this here in 1 Thessalonians 4, because he's talking all about the rapture, and then he concludes with comfort one another. Here's what Paul has to be saying if you believe the rapture is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, get ready, because you're about to face the unbelievable, horrific wrath of God for the next seven years. You're going to see the sealed judgments of God. You're going to see the trumpet judgments of God being poured out. You're going to see the bold judgments of God's fury and wrath that Jesus is treading the wine press of as he comes back. 
for the next seven years. You're going to see unspeakable wrath from Satan himself, the wrath of Satan and the wrath of God competing during the seven-year period. You're going to see devastating earthquakes. You're going to see your brothers and sisters being beheaded for the cause of Christ. You're going to see natural disasters and locusts and demonic plagues. You're going to see a quarter of the earth die and then another one-third of the earth die. It is going to be the most unprecedented, devastating time in the history of the earth, so much so that if it were lengthened any much longer, nobody would ever survive it. Therefore, comfort one another with those words. <laughs> What's comforting about that? The rapture is comforting precisely because, as the Bible teaches, it happens before all of that. That's what's comforting about it. But now let's turn our attention to those who are left behind. Those who are left behind. For those who are left behind, I see ten things that we can draw from Scripture that will be true of those on earth who didn't know the Lord, who never placed their faith in Jesus Christ. Therefore, they're not part of the bride of Christ, and they're not caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And the first thing we see is a global confusion. The sudden disappearance of millions of people will certainly create a global sense of bewilderment. It will be one of those end-of-the-world-as-we-know-it scenarios for those who are left behind. They will be thinking, what in the world is going on? What happened? It will be, uh, by the way, the new Left Behind movie, uh, though I'm not pleased with the way they articulated the gospel in it, it nevertheless was a pretty good portrayal of the types of things that might take place after the rapture on earth, as they call it, the vanishing, and the government comes out and says, well, we debunked this rapture nonsense the first day, and so now it's all these aliens that disappeared and that caused us to disappear and so forth. So a pretty interesting movie, um, but uh, that gives a pretty good idea. But as I'm thinking, you know, historically about times in my life when I could maybe come close to approximating what this global sense of confusion might be, I go back to the helplessness that many of us felt after 9-11. And I had some relatives that still do live in Lower Manhattan and Battery Park. Uh, we've stayed with them when we visit New York City. Uh, you look out one side of their high-rise apartment building, you would see the Statue of Liberty in the harbor. The other side, you see what used to be, or used to see, the Twin Towers. And so they, uh, were there. In fact, that day, uh, we were all, all of my family and relatives across the country were worried because we couldn't reach them. You couldn't get phones in or out of New York City, and we weren't sure if they survived. Um, but they sent some hair, we eventually connected with, a, with them, and they sent some harrowing pictures. These are some of their own pictures that they took, just to kind of conjure up in your mind again what the feelings were like as we were all glued to the TV that day. But here's the North Tower, and there's the South Tower. Again, these are pictures that they took. Uh, here's my cousin's bil apartment building right there, so you can see how close they were to it. I won't take the time to tell you the whole story, but when they eventually got their kids out of the public uh, school number such and such, the way they number the schools there in Manhattan, they managed to get to the edge of the harbor where the uh, ferry boats were, were helping people escape, and this is one the picture that they took back looking across the harbor after uh, one or possibly both of the buildings had collapsed. Again, there's their building right there. These are just some pictures of all of that um, uh, you know, foot-high pulverized concrete after the buildings exploded, which is what happened to the buildings, by the way. 
This is on one of the ferry boats. You can see everybody covered in that. Again, the further they got away, you know, you have a broader perspective. They weren't able to get back to their building until December 1st. And this is a view from the top of their building. Utter chaos. Do you remember that feeling? We didn't know how many planes there were. We didn't know really what was going on. Uh, you know, they grounded all the planes. The stock market closed for a day or two. It was round-the-clock news. That's the kind of chaos that's going to happen even exponentially worse after suddenly all of God's people, believers in this present church age, are rescued. This global confusion. Zechariah describes the global confusion not after the rapture, but during the tribulation a little bit later. But it's a good picture and description of what it will be like after the rapture as well. He says, I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider with madness. Then those who are left behind will experience a false explanation. I mean, what are Satan's earthly co-conspirators and minions going to do? They're not going to stand up and say, we're here to announce that God, the almighty creator of the universe, has sent his son Jesus to rescue all of those who place their faith in him at the rapture. And we implore you to trust in Christ today. I doubt uh, that Klaus Schwab or Joe Biden or Putin or anybody like that is going to say something like that. Um, it'll be a false explanation because, remember, Satan is a liar and the father of it, and this is his hour. This is his time to shine. This is what he's been waiting for is that final seven-year period when he gets to taste power and throw off the cords of control. So who knows what false explanation they will give. I have a whole chapter in, in Volume 2 on UFOs and UAP. I've been talking about that for years. Um, you know, I, I trace it all the way back to the dawn of the modern UFO period in 1947 and connect that to the birth of Israel. And it's all demonic. I do not believe they're little green Martians from another planet. That does not comport with the biblical narrative, but it certainly does comport with the biblical narrative of demonic activity. So they're probably going to use that one, but they could also, uh, you know, claim that it's some type of uh, technology or holographic uh, images. And we, we know that NASA has been working on this in connection with the CIA. Uh, to create holographic images. Hollywood has been sort of setting the stage for these false explanations that might come that we've all been somehow, you know, visited by other, uh, you know, aliens or, and then caught up or, or whatever. But there will be a false explanation followed by an unprecedented deception. By unprecedented, I mean, as we said earlier, deception is getting worse and worse, but it will reach unprecedented heights during this final seven-year period after the rapture. Again, People are deceiving and being deceived. So I already mentioned how it's getting worse and worse ever since sin entered the world, but that means deception is getting worse and worse and worse, and deception is going to reach new levels at, during the tribulation. Um, yeah, I listened to an interview one time uh, on one of my drives. I do a lot of podcast listening just to you know do research and enjoy the, the drive. And uh, the author of a new book called Duped, this was a couple of years ago, but uh, it was all about how people live double lives. And the author mentioned that there's a new model of truth that is gaining traction in our world today. It's a model of truth called the blogger's truth model. I don't know if you've seen this, but the blogger's truth model is where people post things on the Internet that may or may not be true, and then the blogosphere decides what's true. Now, just imagine that world. I mean, that's essentially the world we live in today, where truth is a function of social voting, not empirical fact. Uh, truth is a creation. And we are more deceived today than we were yesterday. We will be more deceived tomorrow than we are today, as I mentioned uh, yesterday. Uh, Satan is not going to deceive the world one day. He's already deceiving the world. But as it gets worse and worse, it's going to reach unprecedented heights during that future 
seven-year period when the Antichrist, the lawless one, is working according to the power of Satan, is going to deceive the world with lying wonders and unrighteous deception. And then I think we will see, for those left behind, an intense lamentation. An intense lamentation. For many of those left behind, there will be a moment when the light bulb goes off. An intense moment of regret and panic and horror as they realize that the rapture has occurred, as they realize that the gospel message that they undoubtedly heard many times throughout their life, especially if they're in America, was true. Everything they heard from their Christian friends, their pastor, perhaps in a book they read, perhaps on the radio or TV while channel surfing, was true. One day, one minute after the rapture, they will realize that the gospel is true, the return of Christ is real, and they've been left behind. It will sink in. And their response will be one of intense lamentation, similar to the description we see in Scripture of unbelieving Jews at the second coming. Remember, Jesus talked about this in his Olivet Discourse. There are going to be those who rejected him within the nation of Israel who say, Lord, Lord, open up to us. And what's he going to say? I do not know you. What a frightful thing to hear. But then for those left behind, we will see a new, the dawn of a new dispensation. A new dispensation. The word dispensation is the Greek word oikonoma, oikonomia, oikonomos. It's used seven times in the Greek New Testament. It's translated dispensation in some English Bibles, like the New King James. But it just means a stewardship, uh, a new economy, a new way of God interacting with mankind. It does not mean a new way of salvation. There's only one way of salvation from Genesis to Revelation, from Adam to the new heavens and the new earth, by grace through faith. Uh, but certainly throughout God's plan of the ages, we've seen God interacting with different people in different ways. I mean, it's self-evident that God interacted, for example, with Adam and Eve differently than he did us, and with Noah differently than he did us, with Abraham and so forth, with the children of Israel through the law and the sacrifices differently than he does us. So the way in which we interact with God today, we have a new and living way opened up for us by the blood of Christ. When the veil was rent in two, we can go boldly approach the throne room in heaven to find grace and help in time of need. We don't have to go through a human mediator. That's the church age, the church dispensation, the church economy. But as we see the church age come to an end with the rapture, we will see the dawn of a new dispensation in this, uh, this transitional time of the seven-year tribulation, the completion of Daniel's 490-year plan but we will see the beginning of the new era, the new dispensation. And then we will see a withdrawn protection. And this is pretty frightening uh, because what the Bible tells us is that after the rapture, the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit will be taken out of the way. In other words, uh, the Holy Spirit today working in and through the church, if you think globally, a number of believers all around the world, I don't know how many that is. Let's say there's 8 billion people in the world. I don't know, maybe what, one billion are Christians, two billion are Christians, who, who knows? And of those, how many are really on fire for the Lord, filled with the Spirit, walking by faith, who, who knows? But whatever that number is, that represents a restraining influence in the world because of the Holy Spirit's convicting work in and through us. Well, when the church is gone, that restraining influence is going to be gone. And as bad as the world is now, just imagine how bad it will be when one minute after the rapture, for a short time until people start getting saved again, not one single believer will be present on planet Earth. 
I mean, for roughly 2,000 years, Satan's been trying to take over this planet and claim it as his own ever since the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. It's easy to see as we look back through the annals of history how much evil he has orchestrated, even going back into the pre-incarnation days, back into the ancient times with Nebuchadnezzar and Ahab, and then in the church age with Herod, Stalin, Hitler, Mao, Pol Pot, on and on and on. There's no shortage of evil. But what the pages of history do not record are the number of times that God's people, under the influence of God's Spirit, have preempted some dastardly deed or plan. Maybe it was a firm ethical stand in a corporate meeting. Uh, perhaps it was private counsel to a world dictator from a believer. Maybe it was the selfless sacrifice of godly men and women who stood up to evil and, and prevailed in unsung ways that you would never heard about. But without question, the Holy Spirit's work in and through the church has been a restraining, protective influence on this earth. And one minute after the rapture, that protection will be gone. Evil will be virtually unchecked. And then we're going to see an evil revelation. As the Antichrist himself, the man of sin, is unveiled. Satan's man of the hour is always on standby in every generation because he has to be ready. He doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen, so he's got to have his guy ready. And once the rapture happens, I believe the Antichrist will indwell this evil man and use him, empower him to, to, to rule in a tyranny. He's going to confirm a treaty of one week for one seven-year period with the people of Israel, and that starts the clock ticking on that final seven years. But there will be good news in the midst of all of this on earth for those left behind, and that is we will see a worldwide conversion because God is going to mark out at the beginning of the seven years 144,000 missionaries. By the way, they're Jew, Jews, another indication that uh, Daniel's seven-year period is for the Jews. Not We should know that because he tells us that. It's for God's holy people in his holy city, and it's called the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is Israel. But in any, way, in any event, clearly this, the spotlight is back on Israel again, and the missionaries that God marks out to spread the gospel are the first converts of the seven-year period after the rapture, but they then go out and spread the gospel. And so, that, so much so, by the time you get to the description in chapter 7, after the sealed judgments, God gives us a little interlude here and tells us what's going on, and he says, look, there's a great multitude that no one can number of all nations, tribes, and peoples, and tongues who get saved. Many of them will be martyred. Uh, but nevertheless, they will come to faith. So there will be this worldwide uh, conversion. And then uh, remember, Jesus had told us during this seven-year time that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached to all the world, and then the end will come. You know, the church, our great commission is to go into all the world and preach the gospel, and we ought to do that. And if the Lord tarries us coming, perhaps we will accomplish global evangelization so that every human being on planet Earth will hear the gospel before the rapture. That's possible. But it's not guaranteed. But what is guaranteed, according to the words of Jesus himself, is that prior to the second coming, by the end of that seven-year tribulation, every single human being on planet Earth will hear the gospel. And then the end will come. And if the 144,000 can't reach him, as we get near the end, just prior to the bold judgments and the battle of Armageddon, Revelation 4.15 tells us that God's going to actually help them in their evangelistic efforts by having an angel go to reach everyone that they haven't gotten to by that point. But there will be, indeed, a worldwide conversion. And then we're going to see a geopolitical reorganization. Uh, from the chaos and confusion created by the rapture will come a new world order, a one-world government that the Luciferians have been talking so much about. 
Uh, it will be headed by Satan himself in the form uh, of the Antichrist. By the way, there's nothing scripturally that precludes us from already being in some form of a one-world government, even prior to the rapture. All scripture says is that the Antichrist won't take the control of it and be the head of it until after the rapture. But if the Lord tarries his coming, we are very likely going to see that happen in our day. In fact, some people would say we're already de facto in a one-world system. We just have pretend national sovereignty. Uh, but this has been Satan's goal all along, to usher in a one-world government. He wants control of the world. You know, uh, John Lennon spoke of, of such a world in his famous hit song, Imagine, when he said, Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. And no religion, too. Imagine all the people living in peace. It's a false peace. It's a coerced peace. But imagine all the people sharing all the world, and the world will live as one. The coming New World Order has been widely known. I gave you lots of quotes about it. I have pages after pages of quotes in my books about it. But the Bible tells us we're headed to a one-world system. Daniel 2, with Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the statue, tells us that there's going to be a revived Roman Empire in the end times. Uh, Daniel 7, with Daniel's vision of the different images, tells us there's going to be a revived Roman Empire in the end times. If you lay them side by side, we know that the Roman Empire that was present during the time of Christ will reemerge during the time of the Antichrist. And uh, at some point, we're going to usher into this fourth world empire reemerging, and it's, he's going to try to devour and trample the earth. But the good news is, at the end of the seven years, Christ is going to come back, a stone not cut with hands, which will strike the image and break it into pieces, and Christ himself will take the throne with a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, a kingdom that shall stand forever. Isaiah the prophet says the government will be upon his shoulders and of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. He will be king over all the earth. When he comes back, he will strike the nations and rule them with a rod of iron. As I said yesterday, we are headed toward a one world government one way or the other. And finally, one minute after the rapture, those who are left behind will experience a fearful expectation. A fearful expectation because the rapture will signal that the great day of the Lord's wrath is upon us. It's about to come. You know, um, when the wrath of God is poured out, it's going to be the great equalizer. All of the inequities and terrible things on earth that have happened, all the guilty getting off scot-free, all the innocent that are unfairly punished, all the suffering, the persecution, all the unfairness of life, it will finally be made right. And certainly God is at work in the world and has been for 6,000 years. There are times when he brings judgment. We see that. But it, nothing will compare to what will happen during the great day of the Lord's wrath. When the wrath of God is poured out, to borrow the words of that uh, rock group uh, BTO, remember Bachman Turner Overdrive from the 70s? You ain't seen nothing yet when the wrath of God is poured out. The Bible says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. When Christ comes back, he will tread the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Isaiah tells us that when that time comes, people should hide out in the clefts of the rocks and in the caves from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty because he arises to shake the earth. 
In Romans 2, Paul says, In accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, talking about unbelievers, you are treasuring up for yourselves wrath in the day of wrath. And whenever I read this verse, I think of an article, actually it was a dissertation that, that a, a student of mine, a friend, and also a friend and colleague wrote that I had the privilege of being on the dissertation committee when I was in academics. And he brings to mind in his article the famous Jonathan Edwards sermon. On July 8, 1741, the Great Awakening came to the little town in New England called Enfield. And the pastor of a congregational church in Northampton, Massachusetts, accepted the invitation to travel 30 miles south along the Connecticut River to be the guest speaker at the congregational church in Enfield, Connecticut. Little did the traveling preacher know as he arrived in Enfield and mounted the pulpit to address the assembled townspeople that the sermon he was about to deliver would become one of the most famous in the history of the church. The preacher was Jonathan Edwards, who later became the third president of Princeton University before Princeton was taken over by the Luciferians. And his subject that day was the imminent danger of remaining unconverted remaining unconverted in the face of God's furious wrath. The title of his now famous sermon was, quote, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And throughout the sermon, Edwards graphically depicts the horrors of hell and the impending doom awaiting all who have never been born again. And I'd like to read just a brief segment of that sermon that give us a sample of its fury and, and, and flavor. Edwards said, quote, The wrath of God is like great waters that are dammed up for the present. They increase more and more and rise higher and higher until an outlet is given. And the longer the stream is stopped, the more rapid and mighty is its course when once it is let loose. Tis true that judgment against your evil works has not been executed hitherto. The floods of God's vengeance have been withheld. But your guilt in the meantime is constantly increasing. You're storing up wrath, Romans 2.5. And you are every day treasuring up more wrath. The waters are continually rising and waxing more and more mighty. And there is nothing but the mere pleasure of God that holds the waters back that are unwilling to be stopped and press hard to go forward. If God should only withdraw his hand from the floodgate, it would immediately fly open, and the fiery floods of the fierceness and wrath of God would rush forth with inconceivable fury and would come upon you with omnipotent power. And if your strength were 10,000 times greater, greater than it is, yea, 10,000 times greater than the strength of the stoutest, sturdiest devil in hell, it would be nothing to withstand or endure it. Now listen. The bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow ready on the string. Justice bends the arrow. One minute after the rapture, we will see a fearful expectation of what's coming. People who know their Bible will, will recognize, I, I should have trusted in Christ. Because the wrath of God is about to, about to come pouring out upon all of sinful mankind. Now that doesn't make God unjust. Because God has done everything he possibly can. And he's doing it again this morning. To let you know 
there is a remedy for your sin problem. There is a way for you to not be left behind one minute after the rapture. You can, you can go instantly into the presence of the Lord like all of our brothers and sisters in Christ if you will simply receive the free gift paid for by the blood of Christ. See, it's our own sin that separates us from a holy God. God cannot wink and nod at sin. God's not a liar. He's not fickle and unfaithful. He warned us, if you sin, you're going to die. And we sinned. Let's face it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, There's not a righteous man on earth who does what is right and never sins. And the punishment for that sin is eternal separation from a holy God in a literal place of torment called hell. But God also made the way of escape. He sent his eternal son and our Savior Jesus Christ to put on human flesh, live a perfect, holy, sinless life, suffer a cruel, cruel, painful death on the cross, shedding his blood, paying the sacrifice on our behalf, rising again the third day, defeating death, hell, and the grave, and offering to all freely the gift of eternal life if we will simply receive it. You can't earn it. You can't pay for it. You can't be good enough. It's not based on your performance. You don't have to walk an aisle, sign a card, raise a hand, do a dance. It's all a simple matter of faith. More than 160 times the New Testament conditions eternal life upon faith alone in Christ alone. It's not about your religion. It's not about the seven sacraments or the five pillars or the this or the that or the baptism. It's about who have you trusted. If you're trusting in yourself or your religion or your heritage or your own self-worth or your good works, you're treasuring up wrath. But if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be saved. And I hope you'll do that today. So we saw from the perspective of those who are caught up and for those who are left behind. Those who are caught up will experience a long-awaited return, a timely rescue, a physical renewal, and a corresponding resurrection, as well as a wonderful reunion in heaven, a personal reward, and a glorious rejoicing. Those who don't know the Lord and are left behind after the rapture will experience a global confusion and a false explanation of what happened, followed by unprecedented increasing deception and intense lamentation, the dawn of a new dispensation, the withdrawn protection from God's people being removed from the earth, an evil revelation of the Antichrist, a worldwide conversion as God still sends the Spirit of God to draw men to him, a geopolitical reorganization, and finally a fearful expectation. I wonder what your perspective will be. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this reminder of the reality of what all of this end times study means. It's an urgent call to get right with you. And the only way we can do that is by faith, to be declared righteous because of our faith in you. And I pray today, if there's anyone here who has not trusted in you, that today would be the day of salvation and they would respond to the Spirit of God's convicting work in their life even right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name.